Well, welcome back, everyone, as we continue our studies in Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. And we find ourselves this week in the second portion of the book, which is called Ve'etchanan. It begins in chapter 3, verse 23, and continues on through chapter 7, verse 11. There is so much packed into these chapters that there's no way we're going to just work our way through the whole text. Instead, I'm going to pick out a few major themes. Here's an outline of the book, at least how I put it together. Uh, the, the portion begins in the middle of chapter 3, and this second half of chapter 3 discusses the transition from Moses being the authority to Joshua. Moses was instrumental to bring the people out of Egypt and bring them to the Jordan. It was up to Joshua to take them across the Jordan and on in and conquer and settle the land. Chapter 4, the uniqueness of the nation. Now, we're going to spend a little time in a few verses here uh, because this is a powerful insight into what God's program was and continues to be for Israel. In chapter 5, we once again see the scene at Mount Sinai that took place back in Exodus chapter 20, and we see a repetition of the Ten Commandments with a few changes in the words, but I'll leave it to you to, to look in to see how the wording has changed a bit here and there. But in chapter 6, uh, we have the Shema in chapter 6, verse 4, and then on the rest of the chapter in, in chapter 7, I put down, remember who you are. And as long as we remember who we are, we will be who we're supposed to be. But forgetting is a very dangerous thing. Uh, so before we get into our study, I want to share something with you. Um, in Ecclesiastes 4.12, it says, A cord of three strands is not easily broken. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And there are many applications of this. You no, know, three friends are going to be stronger than just two, and two are definitely stronger than just, just being by yourself. Um, I remember a book I had at one time. It was entitled One Plus One Plus One Equals One. It was a book on marriage, and it means that one man plus one woman plus God equals one healthy marriage. Um, but I'm going to look at this three-stranded cord in a little bit different way. And I'm going to resort to some colored uh, pins on my iPad here. Because in the scriptures, we see some different cords, different colored cords flowing from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The first of these is the cord of Messiah. So we have this red cord here. The cord of Messiah. The scriptures provide us with a, a, a bloodline of Messiah, beginning with Adam and Eve, then their son Seth, and going on down through the generations, through Noah and through Shem. And then we uh, come to Judah, and Judah had twin sons. And, and the one son, when he was born, they tied a scarlet cord, a scarlet thread around his wrist. His name was Peretz. And later we come to the book of Joshua, and we meet Rahab. And uh, Rahab hung a scarlet cord in her window, and Rahab became one of the ancestors of Yeshua. And we follow this bloodline all the way through. So the red thread is going to represent Messiah, and we're going to look at Messiah in this passage. But then we also, in Scripture, have a different colored thread. You can probably guess what it is. It's a blue thread, the thread of Tekelet. And we see the thread of Tekelet blue running through scripture. And we're commanded to put a thread of tekelet on the zitzitz on the four corners of our garment. And we're to look at them and remember God's mitzvot, his commandments. What are the commandments for? Commandments are a sign that we are in covenant relationship with God. So the blue here represents God's covenants. And his covenant people, because you can't make a covenant with yourself very well. You make a covenant with others, um, husband and a wife, God and his people. So the blue thread we find from Genesis all the way through Revelation as well. But there's also a third chord, and I'm going to use gold for this, because another theme that runs through Scripture from the Garden of Eden 
all the way to the new heavens and new earth and the new Jerusalem in Revelation is the cord of the temple. Wherever you find God's house, whether it's a tabernacle or a temple, you find lots of gold. So I'm going to put here the temple. You can also add with this the priesthood, because a temple without a priesthood is just a building. So the temple and the priesthood. You find lots of gold in the temples and in the tabernacle. You found gold in the Garden of Eden, which is the, the prototype for the tabernacle and the temple. You find streets of gold in the New Jerusalem. And the high priest also had a gold plate on his head, Kadosh Adonai, holy unto the Lord. So in this Torah portion, we find all three of these threads converging and intertwining. And uh, so we want to take these one at a time and, and try to sort out how they, they intertwine together. And I hope that after this teaching, as you study the scriptures, you will look for these three cords that are always interwoven together. So, our Torah portion begins, chapter 3, and we're going to skip down to the, near the end of the chapter in verse 28, where God speaks to Moses and says, But you shall command Yahashua, or Joshua, and strengthen him, and give him resolve, for he shall cross before the people, and he shall cause them to inherit the land that you will see. He will cause them to inherit the land that you, Moses, will see. I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but you need to understand that the name Joshua is the same as the name Yahashua in Hebrew, which is the same as the name Yeshua that we find also in Hebrew, and which is translated in English translations as Jesus. These names are all the same name. They all mean salvation, rescue. So whenever you see the word Yeshua in the Hebrew, if you're reading Hebrew, uh, it means salvation. But who is salvation? Salvation is a person, and that person is our Messiah. Now, an interesting dynamic is seen here in this verse. Moses was to command Joshua. And whenever you read about Joshua, you see Joshua's name mentioned. And what's interesting, you also find a high priest later. Zechariah talks about this high priest quite a lot. His name is also Joshua. And so we see Joshua the deliverer and uh, the leader of Israel. But we see Joshua the high priest also. And um, whenever you see Joshua in the scriptures, think about what can I learn about Yeshua from this? Now, Joshua was not a perfect man, but he bore the image of one who is perfect. It's like uh, uh, the first American president to ever be photographed was Andrew Jackson. And he was elderly when this photograph was taken. And this is the infancy of photography. And when you look at the photograph, it's kind of scratchy and blurry and, and mottled. And it's not a very perfect image, but it is the best image we have of this one president. It's an actual photograph of him. So as you look at people like Joshua, especially at David, I mean, uh, Messiah is called the son of David because they're so much alike. But David was a flawed character as well, as we all know. But he bore the image of one who was flawless. So learn to differentiate between the photograph itself and the subject which or whom the photograph is portraying. So when you read about Joshua, <clears throat> excuse me, um, think of Yeshua. What do I learn about Yeshua in this account, in the story or incident? So we can read it this way, but you shall command Yeshua and strengthen him and give him resolve. Where did Yeshua get his strength? He got it from the Word of God. Of course, he's the Word made flesh. But he was always quoting the text. And when he did spiritual battle with the enemy in the wilderness, when he was being tempted by Satan, what did he do? Each time he countered Satan's temptation by quoting the book of Deuteronomy. 
And so he knew the word, he knew how to use it as a sword. It strengthened him, it sustained him, and he used it to do battle. What an example he's setting for us when he did this. So Yeshua was strengthened by Moses, by the Torah that God gave through Moses. And God goes on and says, for he, Joshua, or we can think of Yeshua, shall cross before the people. And he shall cause them to inherit the land that you will see. The Torah is something that God gave to the people through Moses in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And that Torah is unchanging. That Torah is something to give strength and direction. And the purpose of the Torah, and we'll revisit this statement at the end of the teaching, the purpose of the Torah is to help our behavior align with God's behavior. But the Torah can't change your heart. That's something Yeshua does. And so through Yeshua, we get faith and love. And this faith aligns our heart with God's heart. Let me say that again. The Torah aligns our behavior with God's behavior. But behavior can be only external without having a real effect upon the heart. But faith that comes through Yeshua aligns our heart with God's heart. This is why the first covenant given to Mount Sinai was written on stone, and the blood of the covenant was sprinkled on the people. But in the new covenant, the Torah is written in the heart. And Yeshua gave them a cup and says, drink this. This is my blood of the new covenant. Drink it. It goes inside. One is external, one is internal. Both are important because we are creatures who are physical, that's the left, and we are spiritual, that's the right. The two must blend. So our behavior and our hearts need to align with Messiah. So, based upon this passage, we can see that Moses did not get to follow the first Joshua into the land. But he did get to follow the next one, the real Yeshua. Because when we read in Matthew 17, I believe it is, uh, Yeshua goes up to the top of the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And who appears? Moses and Elijah. Moses finally made it into the land. But it was only through Yeshua. So, it was through Yeshua, through Joshua, back in the days of old, that the people crossed into the land. And it's through our Yeshua we cross spiritually into the land of promise and the victory and the fruitfulness. The theme verse for Beth Takun is one that I picked many, many years ago. And I've never seen any reason to change it. It's from Psalm 119, verse 174. It says, I long for your salvation. In Hebrew, Yeshua. I long for your Yeshua, Adonai. And your Torah is my delight. So I long for your Yeshua. I want to know Yeshua better. I just, uh, I hunger and thirst to see him and, and to, to see his face. In the meantime, your Torah is my delight. So this brings this balance again, once, once again, between Moses and Joshua, between the Torah and Yeshua. I long for your Yeshua Adonai, and your Torah is my delight. So let's move to the second strand, to the blue strand of the covenants and the covenant people. I want us to look at chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. Last evening in the same room, we had a meeting with uh, the leaders of our, our home groups here at Beth Takun, and I uh, shared this passage with them, and we discussed it, and I'll be talking about this in a future teaching. But it's based on this passage. It just so happened that when we had our meeting, it happened to be in this passage, in this Torah portion. And, um, and this really gives us a map of where Beth Takun has been and where we're going. And if we look at these verses... This is what it says. Chapter 4, verse 5. Moses says, See, I have taught you decrees and ordinances. Uh, Decrees is chukat. These are the decrees that make no sense. These are the ones where God says, just do this. You won't understand it. If it comes from me, just trust me, do them. Ordinances are the mishpatim. Mishpatim are the commandments that have to do mostly with how 
people get along with people. And Moses says, I have taught you the Chukat and the Mishpatim as Adonai my God has commanded me to do so in the midst of the land to which you come to possess it. You shall safeguard and perform them, for it is your wisdom and discernment in the eyes of the peoples who shall hear all these decrees and who shall say, Surely a wise and discerning people is this great nation. You know, for the last 25 years, as uh, Beth the Coon has been running, um, outreach has not been a, a great emphasis with us. It's taken place. I mean, when you're studying the word and living the word as, as the community Beth Takun has been doing, people notice and they, they come and it's grown. But it was never, we were never intentional about trying to do outreach. The reason for that is these last 25 years you can think of as the wilderness years. Uh, the wilderness is the place where God gives his word. He gives his devar, his word, in the midbar, the wilderness. And I've spent the last 25 years trying to figure out what does the redeemed life look like? What is God teaching through the Torah? What really is the gospel? Who is God? And I wanted to know him better and deeper than I ever had before. And so I had to take all the things I had learned growing up in the Baptist church and then, then bring them over to the Torah and think, okay, this stays this goes, this needs to be adjusted. And I wanted my faith to align with the Torah. And it's been a, a long, slow, wonderful process. But this takes place at Sinai. This takes place in the wilderness. It takes place kind of alone. But I praise God that God, uh, that he has brought so many wonderful people, brothers and sisters, to come and join me in learning Torah, learning what this life is supposed to look like, and trying to to know God's ways better. But uh, as we move into the future, God has stirred my heart to encourage the individuals of Beth to begin to take the good news to the world. And uh, so I shared this with um, our group last night, and I'll be talking about this more in the future. Now, I talk about outreach. It's not the way we've generally been taught it in evangelicalism. I want to do it the way the Torah teaches it. I'm not trying to get people into church. I want to get people to be the church. And, um, and, and one of the things that's key to this, and again, I, I, I don't want to share everything now. One of the things that's key is this. Israel is made up of 12 tribes, 12 very distinct individualistic tribes who descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. And, um, and these 12 brothers were very much alike in some ways, but extremely different in others. On his deathbed, Jacob prophesied over each of his sons, and these prophecies and these words of guidance to each one were very different for each son. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses does the same thing. Before he dies, he speaks a blessing and instructions over each individual tribe. They're very different. And under Joshua, when the tribes came across the Jordan into the land, they all went to their own territory. So when you came to Israel, it was almost coming to a a collective of 12 different little countries with very distinct personalities. Similarities, yes. Common threads, yes. But very distinct and individualistic in how they lived. Zebulun, for example, they lived on the coast. They were sea merchants. They were very involved in trade. At Issachar, more inland, they were very involved in Torah study and establishing the calendar. Uh, you find the people in the Judah and up in the north of Dan and and uh, they all had different skill sets and different personalities. But what God is saying here through Moses, he said, okay, I've, I've taught you Torah. I'm bringing you to the land. It was a slow 40-year process. But you're going into the land, and the land of Canaan, I've put you in a fishbowl. Because the land of Canaan is where three continents converge. You've got Europe in the west, 
You've got Asia and the East. You have Africa and the South. And all the trade routes between these three continents passed through Israel. So God took this unique people who he, through, through Moses, he, he had taught them his, his statutes and his ordinances, and he put them in a place where they would be on display to the entire world. And as travelers and merchants would pass through Israel, they would see a nation that was unlike any other. And they would take the news of this nation back home with them. And... Um, and this nation was made up of 12 very distinct tribes and different personalities. And one of the things I shared with the group is each of us, each of you, have a unique personality. And I want each of us to pray that God would send each of us a person who needs you in particular, who needs the wisdom you have, the personality you have, the the understanding and insight into God's character that only you have. And pray that God would send that person to you, the one that you can connect with best. And then accompany them to the kingdom. Accompany them in the presence of the king to learn how to live the way the king wants us to live so that they can learn how to lead a life that wherein they have victory over sin and they can live an abundant life. So more about this later. I wanted to whet your appetite. So, again, what does he say? I've taught you these decrees and ordinances. In verse 6, you shall safeguard them and do them. Not just protect them, but do them. Live them out. For it is your wisdom and understanding in the eyes of the peoples. By doing the Torah... What you're doing is you're showing the world what the world is looking for, though the world doesn't even know it. When you live a Torah life, living your life according to the commandments of the Torah, and doing it in the faith and love of a Messiah, you have something the world needs and the world is looking for. And then it goes on and says, and the, the eyes of the peoples who shall hear all these decrees and who shall say, surely a wise and understanding people is this great nation. God wanted Israel to be in this place where people would see their lives and how they, the, the laws and how their, their culture and um, this kingdom is organized and say, what a wise and understanding people. People should see our lives, our communities, and say the same thing. And then they go on, verse 7, and the peoples will say, For which is a great nation has a God who is close to it, as is Adonai our God whenever we call to him. We have God who lives in our midst. We're close to God. He's close to us. And which is a great nation that has righteous decrees and ordinances such as this entire Torah that I place before you this day. So we see that what took place at Sinai and what is being reiterated here in this Torah portion with the Ten Commandments. And as Rabbi David Foreman says, the Ten Commandments are like the table of contents for the Torah. These ten uh, uh, rules, these ten laws are like the, the, the contents where they're broken down and they are um, uh, expanded upon throughout the rest of the Torah and the rest of the Bible. So, we've spent years at Beth Dekun just trying to figure out this life. And we've been too Christian for the Jews and too Jewish for most of the Christians but we're trying to figure out what is this balance? What does the word of God look like? And it's taken us a quarter century. At least it has for me. Others pick it up quicker than I do. But I really sense that in these dark days and the days ahead, God is calling us, at least, you, each individual, to begin to take what you know and begin to impact the world around you with it. 
not going door to door. We're commanded not to do that. But simply to be a light set on a hill. And when people are attracted to your light, they're going to come and they're going to meet Messiah in the unique way that only you can present him and model him. So what we're talking about here, this assembly of peoples, what we're talking is what we call in English the church, but in Hebrew is called the kahal. And if we go over to chapter 5, verse 22, in this chapter, uh, Moses is reiterating the experience of Mount Sinai, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And this is what it says. In verse 22, these words Adonai spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire. Now that word for assembly is the word kahal. This is the word that means the same thing as the word church, or in Greek, ekklesia. In Matthew 16, 18, Yeshua says, And I also said to you that you are Peter, Petros, rock, and upon this rock I will build my ekklesia. Ekklesia is the Greek word for kahal. It's so unfortunate, and I know I've harped on this many times in the past, but so unfortunate that we have uh, taken these words, translated them as the word C-H-U-R-C-H, and used that word only in the apostolic scriptures. Because these two words, kahal and ecclesia, mean exactly the same thing. It means a called out to people, a called together people. But for some reason, we translate this word church, ecclesia, church, in the New Testament scriptures. But we translate it all other kinds of ways in the Hebrew scriptures. And this is misleading. We begin to think that the church began in the Gospels. The church began in Acts chapter 2. And uh, it began way back at Sinai. So now this brings up a question. I was in a conversation just within the last few weeks, and, um, and the conversation was with someone who'd been studying, uh, he's a real student of the word, a real scholar, and um, he was trying to figure out this passage, Matthew 16, 18, about the church, when it actually began. And he knew my teachings about how the church, the ecclesia, the kahal, actually began way back in Sinai. But the teaching is, but the th- he says is that Yeshua says, this is the rock. You build a building from the foundation up. You have to have the rock before you build the building. And how can you build a building without the foundation? And it's here in Matthew when he asks, you know, who do people say that I am? And uh, Peter pipes up and he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Yeshua responds, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood, the physical. The physical and the soul did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then he says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, which is a... Uh, a um, I believe a Greek word, Petros or an Aramaic, I forget. I'm not the scholar. Uh, for rock. He says, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. So the argument it is, you can't build a building without the foundation. And we find the foundation here in this confession of Peter's. Peter is not the rock. He was the first one to give word to the, what the rock is, that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And it was a spiritual revelation that came from the Father. And Yeshua was thrilled, is ecstatic. Ah, this is the rock upon which I will build my ecclesia. So, how can you build a building without a foundation? So in my discussion with this person, uh, a dear friend, and um, I said, well, there's, there's one important building in the scriptures where God lived that did not have a foundation until much later. Yeah, any other human building, we would have a foundation first and build up. And of course, if you're, you're, you have your thinking caps on, you know what building I'm talking about. And that building is the tabernacle. The tabernacle didn't have a foundation under it. It was a tent 
an ohel, and yet God's presence dwelt there, and his presence moved with the people. But there was no foundation. But there was a building, a tent, a, uh, a portable structure in which God's presence lived. And it wasn't until later when David came along that the rock was finally located upon which that temporary structure becomes a permanent structure or should have been a permanent structure and the temple was built. Do you follow my, my thinking on this? So when Yeshua says, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, he isn't saying there wasn't a kahal before. It's like now we have a location where this thing will find permanent residence, where it will find a permanent location. It's almost like the tabernacle was in search of a place where it could put down its roots. And until this moment in the Gospel of Matthew, it was like the kahal of God, the called out people of God were in search of the rock upon which they could build a spiritual house for eternity. And when Peter, the first human being to, to speak these words out of his spirit, out of this revelation that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, until that point, there was no foundation. There was no spiritual rock. But now the rock has been identified. I wish I had a huge whiteboard <laughs> to do this next bit, uh, but you're going to, uh, if you're taking notes, you can expand this out. Have a big sheet of paper. And what we're going to do is talk about the kahal, the church, the ecclesia, the called out people of God. But we also want to talk about the mikdash. The mikdash is the word that applies to both the tabernacle and the temple. It comes from the word kadosh, which means holy, set apart. And when you put the mem in front of it, the mikdash part, it means the place of holiness, the place of uh, where God's set-apart presence dwells. And we would translate the word mikdash as sanctuary. Okay? So, we're going to begin down in the left-hand corner, which is basically a review of what I've just shared with you. And, um, and by the way, just before I forget... The first place we find the word kahal is in Genesis 28.3. It's when Jacob, uh, I'm sorry, when Isaac is blessing his son Jacob and sending him off to Badanaram, and that's where Jacob finds his wife and his other wife and then his other two wives and has all these children and then comes back to the land. But before he's being sent, Isaac blesses him and says, May God Almighty bless you, speaking to Jacob and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a kahal of people. No, peoples, peoples, groups of peoples, like the mixed multitude we find at Mount Sinai, like the mixed multitude that makes up the ecclesia, the kahal of God today. So that's the very first appearance of that word kahal in Scripture right there. So let's go back to this. Let's start in the lower left-hand corner. In Exodus 25.8, in the uh, Torah portion called Teruma, God commands Moses and says, let them construct a mikdash for me, a sanctuary for me, that I may dwell among them. And that word among in Hebrew can also mean within them, which is very interesting. Never lose track of that. And the rabbis make much of this. So this is where the commandment <clears throat> is given to uh, construct a mikdash. Exodus 25.8. Finally, in Leviticus 9.23 and 24, the mikdash and the priesthood, they're all completed. And this is what we read. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, when they came out and blessed the people, the glory of Adonai appeared to all the people. Then fire came out from Adonai before Adonai and consumed the burnt offering and the portions of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. So what we see here is that when it was completed, fire 
comes and consumes the sacrifice of the altar. Apparently the fire came right out of the Holy of Holies, right on out through the curtain without burning it, right on out to the, uh, the opening to the tent, right to the altar and boom, just set the, the, uh, the wood and the sacrifice on fire. So, we see the tabernacle commanded, and then we see it completed, and when it's completed, fire. Now, fast forward. Fast forward uh, uh, just a few centuries to roughly 1000 B.C. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, David does something he should have known better and not done. He decides to take a census that was not commanded by God. And he counts the people, and immediately God sends an angel of death, and a plague begins killing the people, and David's going, realizing, oh, this is my fault. And the plague was coming through Jerusalem, sweeping through the land. And it got to the place of the threshing floor of a Jebusite named Onan. And we read there that... uh, that David rushed and purchased this this threshing floor, and he um, he he built an altar, put a sacrifice on it. In the moment he did that, well, let's just read it. It's in First Chronicles chapter twenty-one, starting with verse twenty-six. Then David built an altar to Adonai there, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings, and he called to Adonai. And he answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of burnt offering. We see fire coming down on this altar that uh, David built right here. And Adonai commanded the angel, and he put his sword back in its sheath. At that time when David saw that Adonai had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite, He offered sacrifice there for the tabernacle of Adonai, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar burnt offering, were in the high place at Gibeon at that time. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was terrified by the sword of the angel of Adonai. Then David said, this, this rock right here, this rock where my mistake was remedied, and where the plague stopped, this rock that belonged to Ornan the Jebusite, this is the place where God's house will be built. This is the rock. The tabernacle can quit moving around. It can now have a home, a permanent home. So David said, this is the house of Adonai God. This is the altar burnt offering for Israel. So David gave orders to gather the foreigners who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to hew out stones to build the house of God. Once again, the foundation didn't come first. There was the tent first. The foundation came later. And what's interesting is that the tabernacle wasn't built from the ground up. It was built from the inside out. Because in Exodus 25, when you read the description of the tabernacle, it begins the description with the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the heart of the Holy of Holies. It describes it first and its lid, its top, where the cherubim were, and then it moves out and describes the rest. It's built from the inside out. The temple's built from the foundation up. Okay? So here, with the tabernacle, there was no foundation. But when David, this incident in First Chronicles 21 22, here we find the rock located. The foundation finally is located. And the foundation was the temple Mount. An amazing place. I hope everyone gets to go there sometime soon. Now let's move to the other chord. Let's move back to the Cahal again. Because there's a similar pattern here. Um, oh, and by the way, we didn't read Second Chronicles 6 and 7, 1 and 2. When David's son, Solomon, 
finally completed the temple, guess what happened? Fire came down once again and consumed the sacrifice in the altar like it had for his father David and like it had for the tabernacle back hundreds of years earlier with Moses and Aaron. Now, the Kahal. In 5.22, as we read, in Deuteronomy 5.22, God made a covenant with his people. And we can read it again. Deuteronomy 5.22, But now why should we die when this great fire consumes us? If we continue to hear the voice of Adonai, our God, any longer we will die. And I don't think that's the right verse. Um, But throughout chapter 5, let's see. Um, We'll just tell you what, we'll just cross out the 22. But all through chapter 5, we see God establishing this covenant with his Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And we know that when um, God spoke from Mount Sinai, and verse 22 is the right one, okay? You can tell I didn't get much sleep. It is the right one. When God made his covenant with them, Mount Sinai, what did they say? They said, Behold, Adonai our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. Fire came down on Mount Sinai. From the midst of the fire, this day we saw that Adonai will speak to a person and he can live. But now, why should we die when this great fire consumes us? If we continue to hear the voice of Adonai our God, any longer we'll die. So, verses 21 and 22. God made his covenant on that very first Shavuot, that very first Pentecost. Fire came down from heaven on top of the mountain. But then when you fast forward to Acts chapter 2, it's once again the day of Pentecost. And people, uh, Jews from around the world, had come to Jerusalem. It's one of the pilgrimage feasts. They come to Jerusalem. And it says in Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 1, that when the day of Pentecost had fully come, and I... uh, I'm just going to read it straight out of my Bible. I did not print out that passage. Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost, Shavuot, had come, they were all together in one place. Where was that place? In the temple. Because that's where the men are commanded to come, on Shavuot. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house. Now the house... It was not a residential home. It was the temple itself, the house of God, where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other languages as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And as you all know, if you've been listening for any amount of time, way back at Mount Sinai at the first Shavuot, we are told, not in the scriptures, but in the Talmud, that the entire mixed multitude heard God speak at Mount Sinai in their own language. And we see the same thing happening here in Acts chapter 2 on this other Shavuot. And once again, we see fire. So we see fire involved with the tabernacle, And then with the construction of the temple, we see fire involved at the giving of the covenant and then also at the renewal of the covenant. Because you see, once again, what did not have a rock before now has a rock. When God made his covenant with the people of Mount Sinai, they did not have a foundation within themselves to receive that covenant. Some of them did. But you wonder, why do the people so quickly and so often drift away from God's covenant promises and their covenant that they had promised to him? Why do they drift away and go into idolatry so often, so easily? Throughout the book of Judges, you see this happening over and over and over again. And you see it happening later. Why was it that it was so difficult for God's covenant to find a home in uh, in their hearts? It's because they needed a new heart. They needed to have a new foundation. 
But in Acts chapter 2, because of Yeshua, the rock, a foundation in the human heart was established to where the spirit can come in and find some place where it can really build itself. Because when the Israelites were tested, so many times they failed. But when the apostles were tested, each one, except for John, dying a martyr's death. And they were faithful to God, and they spoke faithfully of his name up to the moment they died. Every single one of them. They were building the covenant on a rock, an internal rock. And what is that rock? The rock is what Peter said, that Yeshua is Messiah. He is our living rock. And when we confess this with our lips, when we believe it in our hearts, confess it with our lips, something changes inside of us. We become people who, who are capable of allowing something this wonderful, this permanent, of establishing itself in our lives. So you can have the covenant first until you have the rock. It can be shaky. You can have the tabernacle first, but until you have the rock, you don't have a foundation for building something permanent, for building a temple. Is this making sense? I hope it is. I hope I, I'm going to imagine myself and you say, yeah, that makes sense to me. But um, it's, uh, I think it's a wonderful revelation of how these things fit together. And I hope it, it does make sense to you. We're going to take our remaining 12 minutes, if the timer is correct, and we're going to once again move to the blue, the red cord of Messiah and, and, um, and the blue cord of the covenants. And you know, God spoke from a mountain, from Mount Sinai, and he spoke the Ten Commandments. But Yeshua, the word of God, he also went up a mountain and he spoke a sermon. It's found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We know it as the Sermon on the Mountain. And uh, something you can do in your, your, your groups as you discuss this is compare God's speech from the mountain with Messiah's speech from the mountain. And um, <clears throat> why are they so different? But why are they, what also is very similar about them? And what's God trying to teach through these two speeches from these two different mountains? And one was very fiery and very scary, and the other one wasn't scary at all. So what is God trying to say? Well, I love the words of Rabbi Bakia Ibn Pakuda, who lived back in the 10 hundreds. And he said, it occurred to me that since it is clear that man is a composite of body and soul, you know, the physical and the spiritual, one of which is apparent and the other unapparent, because you can see a person's body, you can't see their soul and spirit. But because one is apparent, the other unapparent, we are consequently obliged to serve God in an apparent and unapparent fashion. This means that every commandment has a body, an outside, and it also has a soul, has an inside, has an exterior, it has an interior. And it's so easy to do the exterior commandments externally, just obey them, but not have them in our hearts. People who obey them externally but don't have a heart for God, this is called legalism. Whereas a person who has a close love relationship with God can do the exact same action, yet something about it brings light and life. There's a certain spark and joy about it. And it doesn't seem dull and dreary, and it's never condemning. So what Yeshua did when he spoke his Sermon on the Mount, he took six commandments from the Torah. And it's utterly brilliant what he does. And I'm borrowing this right from the uh, series we did on Matthew about six, seven years ago. And I want us to look at these six commandments just briefly, and then you can take lots of time to discuss them. But the first one he brings is one of the ten, and in Matthew 5.21, he quotes the commandment, you shall not murder. 
and whoever murders shall be liable to a court of law. But then he goes on and says, don't become angry. But if you do, deal with it quickly, because the cause of murder is anger. What he's doing here is building a fence around the Torah. But he's not building an external fence. An external fence is, let's uh, make all weapons illegal, and that way nobody can murder anybody else. That'd be an external fence to protect us from violating the commandment not to murder. But Yeshua says, no, 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 no. Let's do an internal fence in the heart. Because murder, this physical action arises from something internal and visible, and that's anger. So deal with the anger. You don't have to worry about murdering. And then he takes another commandment from the ten. You shall not commit adultery. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 27. He says, I say to you, don't lust for a woman in your heart. If you do, deal with it quickly. You can read it there. So in other words, adultery arises from not keeping custody of your eyes and allowing uh, lustful thoughts. So again, deal with the internal, and you don't have to worry about committing the sin externally. And then he goes to a third commandment in Matthew 5.31. The commandment has to do with divorce. In the Torah it says, if a man sends his wife away, he must give her a certificate of divorce. But he gives them an internal fence, and that is to not selfishly misuse the Torah. Because God granted divorce and allowed it to protect the innocent victim in a marriage. It was so easy for a woman to be married, maybe even outside of her will, and then to be abused by her husband. And uh, so the Torah permits the dissolution of a marriage. It permits divorce to protect her. And also, in some cases, protect the husband. <clears throat> God hates divorce, but I think he hates even worse when people stay together and it becomes an absolute travesty and it mars the image that marriage is supposed to paint of a beautiful picture between <clears throat> Messiah and his bride. So as much as God hates divorce, he permits it under certain conditions so as to protect the innocent victim. And then there's a fourth commandment in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 33, where he quotes, You shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to Adonai, to Hashem. But Yeshua says, don't even make oaths, and you don't have to worry about breaking them. And then he quotes what is so often misused, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is always about my responsibilities when I put out someone's eye or break their tooth. The commandment, wherever you find this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, the onus is on the person who knocks out the eye, knocks out the tooth, that they need to make reparations. But over time, and even in Yeshua's day, this has been turned around to where you knocked out my eye, now you owe me. You knocked out my tooth, now I need to take it out of you. And they reversed it. But Yeshua basically says, go beyond what you owe another. If you do damage to someone else, go further. Do more than what's expected or required. And then he also quotes a saying that is not found in Scripture where it says, uh, the Scriptures do say, love your neighbor. That's in Leviticus 19.18. But he quotes a saying that was uh, kind of current then, which is, love your fellow and hate your enemy. And nowhere are we told to hate our enemies. And he goes beyond that and says, love your enemies. And if you love your enemies, you sure won't have any trouble loving your neighbor. Now, these six commandments have a flow to them, which we are not going to discuss during the teaching. You'll just discuss those on your own. This first commandment about murdering flows naturally into the second one. The second flows naturally into the third. In other words, the third commandment that, uh, that Yeshua quotes is a natural um, output. For, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it, it's, a, it's a natural next step from the one about not committing adultery.
The one about divorce naturally flows into the one about not swearing falsely. And <clears throat> what's brilliant is the one about loving your neighbor as yourself naturally flows right back into the first one about not murdering. And one of the things you'll do during your time of discussion is to talk about the bridges between these six commandments that Yeshua hand-chose and included in his Sermon on the Mount. There's a brilliant flow from one to two to three to four to five to six and back to one. They make a complete circuit. And I want you to discover what those bridges are. And I give you plenty of notes to help you with that as well. But we can't close this section without discussing the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Adonai, our God, Adonai is one. And this is the way it looks in the Torah scroll. In fact, this image comes directly out of our Torah scroll here at Beth Tikkun. Shema, here, it's a commandment. And the word for obey and the word for hear are Shema. There is no separate word for obey. If you truly hear what God is saying, if you truly hear it, you will truly follow it and obey it. If you hear it only with your ears, you may memorize it and think about it, yet not follow through. If that's the case, you haven't really heard it. You haven't heard it with the ears of your heart and your spirit. Shema Yisrael, and then there's God's holy four-letter name, yad heh vav Adonai Eloheinu, our Elohai, our Elohim, our God, Adonai, there's his name again, the four-letter name, Echad, one. Now you'll notice that two of the letters are oversized, the ayin at the end of Shema and the dalet at the end of Echad. And it's believed, there are several reasons, but what's believed that one of the main reasons is that these two letters... Ayan and Dalit spell the word aid, which means testimony. How can this be a testimony? This is a commandment. Well, if you follow into the next verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your resources and these commandments which I command you today shall be upon your heart. Teach them diligent your children. And it goes on. That next verse, even though we treat it as a commandment, and even though Yeshua used it as a commandment, where it says, via hafta et Adonai, and you shall love Adonai, is not a commandment, technically. Linguistically, it's simply a statement, this is what you will do. This word, Shema, is the commandment. Hear, obey, O Israel. Adonai our God. Adonai is one. And it's almost as if saying, if you will truly hear that and obey that, you're going to love him. You're going to do all of his other commandments. And um, this is the commandment, the next word, and you shall love, is not a commandment. It's like a natural outflow. It's okay if you treat it as a commandment. But uh, in Mark, I believe, when Yeshua was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't say, you shall love the Lord your God. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. So, uh, yeah, you can treat the wording, you shall love the Lord your God as a commandment, but technically, linguistically, it is not. This is the commandment here. And this is the last thing I want to bring out from the Shema, which I think is just just kind of neat. Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When he said, I am the way, the Hebrew word for way is the word derech. And derech begins with the letter dalet, derech. He says, I am the truth. The word for truth in Hebrew is the word emet. Emet begins with the letter aleph. And he says, and I am the life. The Hebrew word for life is chai. And the middle letter here is chet, which is the first letter of chai. This is not coincidence. Because you see, when you recognize Yeshua as the way, he's the way in which you walk. 
He's the way you align your heart with the Father and your behavior with the Father's behavior. And that he is the truth. He's the living embodiment of everything that's in the Torah. He is the spirit and soul of the Torah. He is the word made flesh. And to understand the Torah in its deepest and innermost way, we must know Yeshua. We must have a deep connection with him. He's the way and the truth. And when you have these things, then you're going to have life, which is at the heart of the word Echad, though it's the last one Yeshua mentions because we have to know him as the way and the truth before we can really live in him. But it's the heart of the word one, the word Echad. And we must have a life that is in common and in connection with God. And the weight of the statement is not to teach us that there's only one God. There were many religions in the day and many peoples who believed there was only one God. But this statement means that not just there's one, only one God, but it's God with whom we have to do in everything. No matter where you turn, God is there. No matter what you do, God is present. No matter where you are, God sees you. And it's in him we live and move and have our being. I believe that uh, when Paul quoted that, he had this Shema in mind because God infuses the universe with his presence. The whole world, the whole earth is filled with his glory. We may not be able to see it with our eyes, but we should be able to see it in our spirits. And I know for a fact, if you and I can truly grasp how thoroughly God saturates our existence and our world and our history, we would never worry about a single thing, ever. Never. It just won't happen. Because he is so present and so close all the time. Even in the mistakes we make, God weaves those in to accomplish his purpose. Even with all of Israel's rebellions and failures and whinings and complaints, he still brought them into the land. And even with David taking a census, which was dead wrong, and the plague that came and all that died, even in that, the rock, the foundation for the temple was identified. Even in David's sin, that happened. And even in David's horrible sin with, with Bathsheba, a son comes out of that named Solomon, the son of David, the ancestor of Yeshua. Even our mistakes, even our errors, our failures aren't big enough to diminish God's goodness and power and purpose in the world. That's no excuse to make mistakes but it is a good reason not to worry because he's bigger. He's bigger than our enemies. He's bigger than ourselves and bigger than our errors. So I want us to shema. I want us to hear and trust him and obey him and, and then love him with all our heart, soul, and resources. That's my heart for myself, for Beth Takun, and for all of you who are listening. So here are your questions. If you want to tune out the teaching at this point, you're welcome to, but the questions are these and they, are, will, they will be available on the website. Uh, what does the relationship between Moses and Joshua teach you about the relationship of Torah and Yeshua? We brushed over this quickly. There's so much more that you can uh, look into as you think about Moses and think about the life and career of, of uh, Joshua. What do the following verses all have in common? We didn't talk about this at all. This is something for you to look at. These are passages, verses from Deuteronomy and our Torah portion. What did they all have in common? Why are the two letters of the Shema written oversize, uh, the ayin and the dalit? Hopefully you still remember. How does Yeshua's Sermon on the Mountain correspond to God's speech from Mount Sinai? We touched upon it with these six commandments, but there's more. So you can talk about that more as well. And uh, yeah, you can have a lot of fun with that question. In light of today's teaching, what new insights do you have into James' statement in James 2.10? For whoever keeps the whole Torah yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So in light of today's teaching, what new insights you have into that? That's the toughest question of the, of the list. 
And then Yeshua chose six commandments from the Torah to use in this sermon. Discuss how each of these commandments points to the next commandment that he teaches. And even number six circles all the way back to number one. Okay? Then all the notes and passages that I used are also here. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, thank you, thank you, thank you for your word, for your your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I praise you so much. What a, a glorious and wonderful light it is. And yet, Lord, we need spiritual eyes to see the light that is there. And as the psalmist said, by your light we shall see light. So, Father, give us the light we need to see the light we don't yet have, to see you more clearly, to see the glory of your face, to peer into the deep darkness where you sometimes hide yourself and dwell, and we can find you. So, Lord, take the words that have been shared and the insights and And uh, may they stay with us throughout the week. May we continue to chew on them and may they continue to speak to us. And I pray that you use them to make us more the people you want us to be, I ask in Yeshua's name. Amen.